Good evening, everybody, and uh, welcome to this evening's session of uh, Chat with the Designers, your live online interactive weekly magazine for hams, homebrewers, and experimenters across the fruited plains of the world, and sometimes even beyond. Um, this is your, uh, this is one of your hosts tonight, George, N2APB, along with co-host Joe, N2CX, and we have a very special treat here tonight, as we've already discovered, is uh, Rich Arlen, K7SZ, a noted author and columnist and QRPer of long time and illustrious standing with, uh, with our community, is with us here this evening to talk about the topic of emergency preparedness before, during, and after the event. So what we wanted to be doing this evening is an interesting approach. We're going to take a, a slightly different style for tonight, and that is that of an interview. So we have, as I said, with us a quite experienced ham who's um, been in MCOM, emergency communications activities, for some time. And as such, he's got some really good experience that he can share with us. Like many of our other topics, there is just so much material that it's impossible to just even itemize and go down to every single aspect and every dimension of the topic. So what we wanted to do was to pick the highlights of the topic of emergency preparedness for hams. And of course, our role in emergencies, besides keeping ourselves and family safe and, and prepared and such, is be ready to be assisting in a radio sense for disasters, be they hurricanes, earthquakes, floods, tsunamis, superstorms, or whatever we might have in front of us at any given time. So we're going to focus a bit on the ham radio aspects and the radio communications aspects that we as hams would normally encounter or need to prepare for and then serve as in the disaster time and, and afterwards in a cleanup. And we, we purposefully broke the topic into three sections, before, during, and after, because each one of those periods of time, before the disaster, during the disaster, and after the disaster, each has its own particular persona, its own characteristic, and things that we would do as ham communicators in those uh, those sections of, of the uh, the emergency. So what we wanted to do was to give a shot at kind of itemizing the things that we as hams would do for preparing. And what better way than to get right into it with Rich, K7 has said, Rich, before we actually start the interviewing process, could you kind of overview, give us like two, three, four minutes of your background, your experience, uh, maybe as it relates to emergency preparedness, your time in the Air Force, maybe how that helped to contribute to where you are today. Again, no more than, uh, say, four minutes. I'll interrupt at the, uh, at the appropriate time. But if uh, you can help us set the stage by telling us a bit about yourself, that would be helpful. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I uh, spent 20 years in the Air Force from 1967 to 1987, stationed for almost 17 of those 20 years overseas, in Japan twice, um, weathered several major earthquakes over there, plus a couple of typhoons. And you've never lived until you've been in a, what they call a paddy house off base with about a 100-mile-an-hour wind zipping through the neighborhood. Uh, puts a whole new spin on uh, rickety construction. Uh, also spent some time in the Azores where if it wasn't nice and sunny, it was raining horizontally, and we just uh, had a few storms in the North Atlantic there. Uh, we went about 15 days uh, prior to Christmas of 72 without any aircraft landing because of the weather was so bad and, and the winds were so high. And we normally closed the, the tower down when the winds got over 35 miles an hour because the tower was up on a bluff. So, you know, it was kind of a, a, a hardship uh, tour there for a while in some cases. Uh, spent a lot of time in Virginia. We had some earthquakes, or not some earthquakes, uh, some uh, 
heavy-duty uh, hurricanes there. Uh, spent 16, 17 months in Oklahoma City, and that's in the middle of tor uh, Tornado Alley. So we've been around the world a couple of times and uh, had a lot of fun. Spent a lot of time in uh, emergency communications. And uh, with, the, uh, with the Air Force, they always uh, stress you know, being prepared. And we always, in my particular career field, we always had to have a jump kit standing by. So the transition from jump kit to go bag was not a real big one for me. Uh, my wife got her ham license uh, a few years back specifically to join an MCOM. And uh, that was one of the, uh, the highlights of her thing was, uh, you know, she decided to get off the fence and do something constructive and actually join in the uh, emergency preparedness. And we are both members of the Gwinnett County emergency uh, uh, teams here, the ARES team. And uh, it's a rather large organization, about 130 members, and uh, we have a, a regular uh, system of, of vetting people to become deployable. Uh, they have their own uh, series of tests that they have to, uh, to give you before they deem you deployable. And uh, we work very closely with the um, local county, Gwinnett County uh, EMA and the state EMA. So that's it uh, in a nutshell. Go ahead. All right. And does your has your um, your emergency experience, emergency work and uh, preparation and experience, has that helped out in the radio communications of amateur radio, whether it is in field day or some of the um, uh, the emergency preparation drills that we have in, in the ham world? Oh, absolutely. Uh, field day is a mandatory uh, thing for, for both myself and my wife. Uh, it's a holy day of obligation, I, as I like to call it. Um, we like to do it QRP-wise, but that's beside the point. Um, some people actually say QRP and MCOM have no uh, business being used in the same sentence, and I say balderdash. Uh, it's absolutely essential that you have the ability to go on the air with low-power equipment, because uh, otherwise you're putting quite a drain on existing uh, power requirements, and uh, if you can be self-sufficient with uh, solar panels and, and small battery packs, you're much better off. Uh, not being part of the problem and, and being part of the mitigation team. Uh, as far as uh, what happened in the military and the stuff, I, uh, the ordeals I've gone through there, absolutely gives you an idea. Uh, quite frankly, MCOM is uh, probably 99% ho hum, another drill, and 1% total terror. Yeah, all right, I hear you that. I hear you about that. You mentioned power, and why don't we kind of get into things a little bit. Joe, do you want to kind of maybe kick us off with uh, the first of, we'll start with uh, a ping-ponging effect of uh, questions, and first at the top of the whiteboard is uh, is power and power considerations. Joe? Certainly, George. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, welcome to the uh, session here, uh, Rich. Good to have you uh, along. We hope to make use of your, uh, your experience. Um, what would you say is probably the the top two or three best power sources to rely on in emergency communications? Um, can you um, give us a short treatise on that? Yeah, um, batteries obviously. Uh, our gear, as, as QRPers, I think most everybody here is a QRPer. As QRPers, we're used to using battery packs, seven and a half amp hour gel cells, four amp hour gel cells. In my case, I've got a couple of 20-amp-hour gel cells sitting in here. Um, they provide a lot of power in a, in a relatively small package, but they are exceedingly heavy because they're lead-acid gas, what the heck they call that, uh, gas, AGM, aerated gas, 
mat or something like that. Uh, and so they're heavy. Lithium ion is, is the new kid on the block relatively. Uh, there are some really neat battery packs that are really, really expensive that are variations of the lithium pack. Ed Brenheiser, uh, WA3WSJ, uh, is a big proponent of these things for backpacking and uh, pedestrian mobile. Uh, his battery packs are about 300 bucks a piece, but they are very small, very compact, extremely light for what they'll, what they'll give you. Uh, again, a lot of money to be putting into a battery pack, but if you have the money to spend, you know, by all means. Uh, I just discovered this thing tonight just before the net. It's called Goal Zero, as in uh, uh, goal as in soccer goal and zero. It's a uh, rather interesting little site. It's got a number of solar panels and rechargeable kits that go together. They've got one for $159 that one of the uh, New Jersey hams has on YouTube, uh, Go Kit. And uh, I'm looking at that very seriously. It's a little 7-watt panel. Uh, it would be good for recharging uh, cell phones and recharging the VX3 uh, Yesu handhelds that we have. Uh, it, be, it, it beats not having power. Uh, the other thing, of course, are rechargeable batteries of, of some form or another, whether lithium-ion, uh, nickel-metal hydride, NICADs, uh, the older technology. Uh, they all have their place. Uh, people tend to shy away from NICADs, but, oh, well, you'll have this. Um, so solar panels uh, are, if you can get the type that are, are easily transportable, I have a small 10-watt panel, I also have a small 5-watt panel, and this 7-watt panel is a fold-up panel from Goal Zero, which protects it a little bit better than my two. Uh, I'm looking seriously at this. Uh, not that I really want to spend the extra money, but hey. The uh, other thing, of course, if you're plant-in-place uh, generators, uh, you can buy the two-cycle generators from Home, no, it's not Home Depot, uh, Harbor Freight has a little two-cycle generator for about $100. You have to mix the gas and the oil. It's about 900 watts, I think, so or 750, 900 watts. It's under a kilowatt. It'll, it'll do okay. You'll, you'll be able to use you know, a recharging circuitry on it and stuff like that. Again, it's not going to last you 20 years, but then again, for 100 bucks, what the heck? Hey, Rich. Uh, yeah. When you're out in the field and uh, you're, you've gone through your uh, batteries and they're dead or close to it, you know, hopefully you've got some re um, someone's to replace it and uh, put the other ones in some kind of a charging bay. You mentioned generators, and I'm I'm guessing that you're thinking that uh, a common use of the generators is, of course, to recharge your battery sources, among other things. So, um, what kind of battery chargers um, have you found success? success in using. Okay. Um, the wall warts will plug right into an AC, gen uh, the generator that puts out AC. Some generators, not all, have a 12 volt or 13.8 volt DC output so you can use that to recharge uh, directly to recharge your NICAD and, and nickel metal hydride and lithium ion packs if you want to. The uh, There's one and it's over here. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta put the computer down and go get it. So bear with me here. I rip off what happened to it. It was sitting right here. It's a um, multiple. It's a battery charger. I can't hang on a second. I can't find the right answer. Rich, it's okay. You don't have to get it. And uh, is it the Maha, the MH1 you're referring to? Yes, that's the one I had. Uh, it's the MH1, and I think it's around seventy dollars or eighty dollars. 
does a very good job on a number of different battery packs, nickel metal hydride and NICAD and lithium ion. It'll take, uh, I, I bought an old uh, HT, an old Kenwood HT. I don't have a charger for it, but it sits upright and it goes into this little box on the side and it'll charge that by itself. So it's a pretty doggone versatile little thing. It takes about 24 volts AC. Uh, not a DC wall wart, but an AC wall wart. So save your old battery packs from your computers. And uh, you, that's what I use because I lost a, a wall wart that came with it you know, five, six years ago. But, uh, yeah, they're a real, uh, real handy thing. Oftentimes it's simplicity that wins out in the field, is it not? And the Mahas and a couple of the ones that I've shown there on, a, on the whiteboard, um, one is a Power X, and I don't even know what the other one is. They're kind of fancy. Would you recommend having simplified charging systems that you can just kind of uh, plug in and not worry about later on? Or uh, here you might need a manual in order to just set the charging, the charging rate, 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 things like that. Oh, absolutely. Anytime you can make it foolproof or not worry about what you're doing and continue on with the emergency communications, you're better off doing that, uh, obviously. You can concentrate on what you're doing. The best thing to do, and, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, it's just whatever you like and whatever you found works for you. If it works for you, use it. Uh, I'm not hard and fast on any, on any charger. I like the Maha because it was uh, KI0PF. Uh, Mike, uh, Mark Francis turned me onto it because we were doing uh, uh, battery packs for military radios, and they were 14-volt uh, 14 battery packs uh, made out of uh, C-cells. And uh, they were... It worked very, very good for that, and it works very good for everything else I've got. So I like it. It works. If there's something better out there, by all means, you like it, go ahead and use it. And how about solar cells? You mentioned that really quickly. My impression is that solar cells by themselves really aren't going to do a big job. It's, it's more or less a trickle charge through the day, assuming you have sunlight. Yeah, solar panels of any size, you're going to have to get up to probably... 25 to 45, 50 watts to really do a quick recharge on anything. And then you're going to have to have a lot of direct sunlight. You're going to have to recharge uh, those battery packs uh, with, with a fairly heavy current flow, and that only comes from big output, uh, you know, large output uh, wattage solar panels. If you want to get a good overview of solar panels, uh, the book uh, Emergency, Power, uh, see, Emergency Power for Radio Communications by Mike Bryce, second edition, which is published by the ARRL, is an absolutely fantastic book. I've known Mikey for probably 30-plus years. He is self-taught in electronics. He is a solar dealer for the last 25 years, unbelievable technician and, and uh, designer. And this guy really put together a great book. Get it. It's well worth the $24, $27, whatever it is. Good, good point. And we've got that book on a reference list at the bottom of the page. For those newcomers here to the um, chat with the designers, we often, we always have a very extensive reference list at the very bottom of the page. Since we can't cover everything, we're not going to be able to cover everything. We want to give listeners, uh, podcast listeners, as well as those here live with us, um, a chance to have a kind of full access, full resource um, availability based on the experience that, uh, that Joe and I have, as well as... Uh, uh, the contributing authors and speakers that we have here with us at, at any given time. Rich, I had we had chatted earlier about um, um, generators, and I have often mused, thought about, and, think, and thought, 
jokingly about uh, putting a family member on an exercise bike during an emergency when we don't have power with a generator connected up to the main axle. You can see that picture next to the red uh, generator on the whiteboard. A generator somewhat like that, if you could couple it to an axle. How feasible is that? Is it? Uh, does anybody do it? And uh, how hard is it to do? The answer to that is yes. We do it all the time on field day. I have been with a number of clubs that have had a, uh, a very uh, old bicycle that they've modified, put a Normally we use an old car generator, not an alternator, because the alternator actually produces AC, has diodes inside it that convert that to DC, and requires an external uh, 12 volts to the field winding in order for it to produce power. So if an EMP ever occurred, you'd lose the diodes in the alternator. So the alternator would just be a nice paperweight of about you know, 15, 20 pounds. An old generator off of a 1956 Ford cop car would be ideal for about a 90-watt generator. And you can hook those up through a belt or chain drive system to a bicycle, and you can pedal. The only problem that happens is the people who pedal aren't going to be expecting a massive load to be put on there like you would if you put a 12-volt deep-cycle battery on there to recharge it. As they're pedaling along, and all of a sudden you put the load on there, that you'd be surprised. They almost stop pedaling it. It's that much... Uh, uh, traction is required to keep that doggone bike in motion. It's just like, oh my God, what happened? And uh, people tend to tire out rather quickly. It is doable. Uh, we do it regularly with uh, gel cells. Um, and one other thing I'd like to make a comment about uh, uh, solar panels. They are expensive. The, uh, the normal rate up until recently is about $6 a watt. Uh, and you can see by that 7-watt one for 150 bucks, that is way over $6 a watt. Um, the stuff you get at Harbor Freight is around 6 to $7 a watt when it's on special. And Mike, in, his, uh, in an email I just got from him the other day, Mike Bryce, WBAVGE, told me that the current going rate, if you buy quality panels, is between 2 and $4 a watt, but you have to go through a dealer and they get the best deals and don't buy used uh, used panels. So just data point, frame of reference kind of thing on solar panels, about somewhere between 5 and $6 a watt is what you're going to pay out of pocket if you go to the basic retailer like uh, Goal Zero or uh, Harbor Freight, etc. Go ahead. That's very interesting. That's, that's a good data point. Thank you. Um, we're going to move away from the power portion of... Uh, of the whiteboard here. Does anybody have any questions before we move on to go packs? Uh, JJ, was that you? Yeah, I just had a comment. I'm working with a graduate student over Parsons Design College in New York, and uh, there, as a project, they're revamping the bicycle to put in a built-in generator in inside the hub, becomes a hub replacement, and they get six volts out and uh, plenty of current to charge batteries and uh, they're using lithium polymer batteries, and they're uh, setting it up with a whole telemetry system on the on the bike. Pretty interesting. Rich, go ahead. That is really cool, actually. David, <laughs> you know, the the one story I got at this particular point I've got to talk about is is the story when I was with the Southern Peninsula Amateur Radio Club, which was Very full cool. of real live rocket scientists. These guys, all NASA Langley, other side of the uh, base from Langley Air Force Base, which I was stationed at, 
And one field day, I was in charge of the QRP thing. We had to do a battery uh, charge and then you get the five contacts with the charge battery from the solar panel, etc. One of these guys came out. He says, what I'm going to give you is something that we've been working on. But he said, we don't have a charge controller on it, so you're going to have to monitor the current on this thing. It was a high output capacity solar panel designed for uh, spacecraft. And this thing did a full charge on a battery in about an hour and a half. I mean, I have no idea what this thing is possible to put out. But it was really amazing because I was used to the old, you know, to, uh, half an amp, one amp power output of, a, of a, a panel. And this thing just, you know, just filled that battery right on up. It was kind of cool. That's what you get when you play with uh, rocket scientists. Go ahead. That'd be pretty good to take out on the field day if you still have it sometime. Huh. Um, does anybody have other questions about power and batteries? Okay, nothing heard. Uh, Joe, do you want to take us into the land of the go kit? Lead us off with a question and, and, and follow it through with Rich? Certainly. Uh, Rich is uh, well equipped in this area, particularly with his military background. Um, Rich, one of the things that um, you have stressed is very important in being prepared is to have a go kit. Um, what sorts of things go in a go kit and um, what personally do you um, use? Uh, what sort of go kits do you have that uh, you found very um, uh, useful for emergency preparedness? Okay, well at this time I'll go ahead and give a, put a plug in for CQ Magazine. The November and December issues of CQ Magazine in the learning curve column, which is one I used to write, um, have information there about my go kit and what I've found and, and everything. Bottom line is I have gone through I don't know how many different types of bags and packs and, and baskets and everything that I can think of. Probably the most compact one was uh, one built around the FT817 and the LDG tuner. and It was just nothing but radio stuff. But it was very compact, and it was in a little uh, red baggie that uh, somebody, I think Mountain Ops or somebody like that, made. They went out of business uh, after a couple of years. But it was kind of neat, and I, I let that go when I, told, when I sold the radio. Unfortunately, I should not have done either one. Um, I use Molly gear, which is a replacement for the Alice packs that the military now uses. And the main reason I do that is because of the modular components that can put together to tailor the, your go kit to specific missions or specific outings. And the reason that's important is you can't take everything. My guidance is this. Get a good go, uh, go on the internet and, and put together a list uh, from stuff on the internet that you see. Other people have their go lists on there. The ARRL publishes one. You know, there's everybody and their dog who's got any interest in ARES and RACES has a go list. And that's what they pack, or that's what they're supposed to pack. Take that list, merge what you want, mix and match, whatever, based on what your requirements are and who your supported agencies are. Take that, assemble everything that you have on that list at one point. Try to get it into whatever you want to carry, and then try to pick it up. At that time, you will hit the realization that you cannot take it all with you. So that is when you start sit there and start weeding stuff out. How often are you going to use this? How often are you going to use that? Do you need two changes of clothes? Do you need extra socks? You know, all this kind of stuff. Go through 
and be cruel. Do this three or four times. You'll end up getting it weeded out to where you have a basic kit that you can actually pick up because you're humping that ruck by yourself. You don't have a gun bearer with you. Anyway, I never did. I, maybe some other people do. Bottom line is you're going to be out there. You're going to be trying to provide communication support. You don't want to be a burden on the, on the served agency, the disaster mitigators. You're part of the mitigation team. You're not part of the problem. Therefore, it's incumbent upon you to pack your stuff, know what you want to pack, do it right. You're going to go through probably five, six, maybe even ten iterations of that pack before you get it right. Don't be afraid to experiment. Don't be afraid to sit there and look in survival manuals. Uh, pick up uh, the Backwoodsman magazine. All sorts of different stuff there that you can that deal with. It. Backwoods survival, pack packing, all of these kind of things. It all pound, ounces equal pounds, pounds equal pain. That's the way it works. And let me tell you, it only takes once or twice out there in the bush with a heavy, heavy pack when you're going to sit there and say, gee, this MCOM thing has got to be done a different way. Go ahead. Rich, one uh, sidelight uh, had occurred to me. Uh, we've been talking about HTs primarily, but you mentioned the FT-817. There'll be other equipment in there, and this uh, allies with both power and with uh, the go kit. Um, do you recommend some sort of standardization of power connectors? Um, that can be a holy grail subject or uh, a, uh, a meaningless uh, subject. What, what's your feelings on the matter? Okay, I think the default or the de facto power coupling right now are the power poles in 15, 30, and 45 watt models. Theoretically, you can't reverse polarize them. I, let me put it this way. I haven't been able to, and if I can't do it, I don't think anybody else can. Uh, I live under the sign of the, you know, <laughs> under, under a black cloud with a lightning bolt coming out of it sometimes. And, uh, you know, if, it's, if it can be done wrong, I'll do it. But uh, as for the 817, great little radio, has a lot of uh, features. The only problem with that is the received current is around an amp, 750 mils to an amp. That's a lot. Uh, and you, you do have HF capability plus VHF, UHF, all mode. So it's a really nice little radio. It's nice and compact. Put a new little amplifier on the back of it for VHF, UHF that MFJ has. You can get it 30 watts, 40 watts out on FM, which is just fine. You're down in the base oh, station category. And that, that makes a lot of sense. I have FT60s, which are a handheld by Yesu, and the VX7s, which are the micro handhelds by Yesu, simply because that's what we decided we were going to do, uh, and I didn't want to buy another FT817. So if I had it to do all over again, I'd probably also have the 817 handy because more and more different uh, organizations are starting to explore 10-meter single sideband and digital modes on HF uh, in support of their uh, served agencies. So that's something to consider. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, with uh, just a final wrap-up question, with something like the 817 that has the coaxial power adapter, um, what do you do? Do you have a, uh, a pigtail with a... Um, uh, one of the other power connectors on it, the power pole connectors, or how do you handle a, a non-standard piece of gear like that? Well, what I did on mine, uh, Phil Salas, AD6S, writes a column in, uh, in QST. He has a website that's just chock full of neat little projects. One of those is a battery conditioner for an FT817. And it basically boils down to it's, a, it's, it's something with a crowbar circuit in it and a fuse. So you can't go over current. You can't go over voltage. 
and it gives you a standard output to the back of the radio, and the output of that, or the input of that, is an actual power pole. The output is a little coaxial connector, the, you know, the what is it, 2.5 millimeter, 3.5 millimeter connector that goes in the back of the ASU. And that satisfies the power requirement and keeps everything healthy. The one thing you don't want to do is blow up your radio. Not a good thing to do, especially when you're depending on that radio. And that brings me back to one other point about the 817. If that's the only radio you have, you might want to seriously consider adding a dual band handheld with a 5 watt capability, simply because if you lose the radio, if you lose the 817, you lose everything. That's not a good situation to be in. Go ahead. Very good, yeah. Uh, excellent points there. Um, another thing we need besides a radio, and this always gets to be an issue, is antennas. Um, of course, if you have a repeater, you can uh, you can get by a little duck on the uh, on the handheld. But um, if you're if you're not tied to a repeater, if you're in a remote location, what sorts of antennas and antenna supports work out well for uh, for MCOM? Very interesting question, and that's got so many answers it's not even funny. I try as hard as I can. I cannot get my wife, Patricia, KB3MCT, to lug four sections of Roan 25G tower out in the woods on her back. She's just So I've given up on that, and I go to a, a mass system. system. Uh, actually, it's an uh, Israeli fiberglass mass system that's sold by Fair Radio. I don't know that they still have them. But it was uh, at one time it was around $125, $130 for two of them, and I can go up 40 feet with that, and it weighs about 15 pounds. It actually came with an 80 megahertz antenna, uh, ground plane antenna that I cut down for two meters to make a two-meter ground plane. So it it has it's ready-made with an omnidirectional antenna. You can whip it up 40 feet, and uh, it has its own guy, little guide system in it with uh, light duty nylon cord and everything. So it's, it's perfect for MCOM, perfect for a, a portable operation for a weekend or a week, whatever you want to do. Normally there is the X, is it the X50D diamond? It's a dual band, 100 watt or 200 watt uh, base station antenna. It's about five foot tall, really short radials, VHF, UHF. I use that, uh, the Israeli mass system that I have. You can use the gray four mass system if you want to which is all aluminum poles, and I think you can get them for about 50 to $75 for 30 feet, 40 feet. It all comes packaged with a hammer and everything else to put the guy wire, the guy stakes in the ground. Um, you know, look around, be creative. Uh, you know, fence posts, top, the, the fence uh, top rails on the chain link fence are like a 10 foot, 11 foot 6 inches, I think they are. And they'll telescope, so you put two of those on top of your car with bungee cords, drive out, set them up, you got 20 feet in the air uh, and, and lash them to your, your uh, car top carrier for support laterally and you have an expedient antenna system. I mean, you know, you, use your brain. You know, experiment and let us know what you're doing because that makes it all more better. A small aero beam, uh, I like the one that they use for uh, satellite communications. It's got, I think, seven elements for UHF and four elements for VHF, cross-polarized. Uh, you can, you know, just Whichever polarization you need, whichever band you're on, you just, you know, horizontal vertical polarization on 2 or 432, flip it that way and, and point it toward wherever you're going to get to, and you got some gain, uh, you know, 5, 6 dB of gain, and, and that's, you know, that in a 30 amp or a 30 watt amplifier by MHA on the back of an 817, or a handheld, 5 watt handheld, 
get you into the day station category, and you're going to be full quieting most of the time into a remote repeater. The other thing is a lot of clubs, a lot of ARES units now are doing what they call a portable repeater system, either UHF or VHF. Our guys have a VHF repeater system, has the same output as the normal repeater, the G4, or the uh, W4GR repeater, which is 147075. The output on the portable repeater is still 147075, but it's down 600, not up 600, with the same PL of 85.5 or 82.5. And that, uh, when they have the portable repeater out, all you do is flip a switch, and you've got the other one programmed in your radio, and you're on the portable repeater, and you get an extended period of time, uh, extended. Uh, area of talking uh, with a 25-30 watt repeater on its own antenna system. So, number of ways to skin the cat, antenna-wise, repeater-wise, be creative, get in involved with the, with the local ARES guys, and, and do yourself a favor and, and really, you know, knuckle down and get it done. Okay, very good. Um, quick question: uh, You're talking about UHF, VHF. If you were using, uh, for example, 10 meter sideband, as you had mentioned earlier. What sort of antenna would uh, would be appropriate there? Actually, you could do a 10 meter beam, a little three element 10 meter beam. Wouldn't be all that bad. You could build one out of, of scrap uh, uh, aluminum. Uh, you could, I think MFJ has one, or Testcraft probably has one. They're probably really expensive if you buy it that way. You pick one up at a at a ham fest for probably uh, under 50 bucks or 75 bucks. Uh, I would sit there, believe it or not, and go with a dipole, a, an inverted V set up on a mast, 10 meters, you know, at uh, 5 watts output on an FT817, or if you wanted to go 50 watts, if you had the 50 watt amplifier and the battery capacity to make up the difference, uh, that would work out quite well. Uh, primarily, we're looking at digital modes when we do that. Uh, they've also played with 80-meter digital modes, and uh, I noticed you put the uh, picture of the SDR cube up there. What better way to play digital? <laughs> I got to tell you, George, you done hit a home run with that bad boy. And Yuha, my co-designer on that one, is here too. Definitely. And um, I noted that you have your cube that's on display in your, your cover photo up at the top of the page. And uh, the reason I put it here is because it is, it's a, um, it's a very flexible radio system and it is battery operate. It's able to be operated on batteries in the field. It was designed uh, purposefully for that to have the flexibility of communicating with different modes as they come along in the software uh, even the RF power amp, which is currently being readied for production, uh, introduction very shortly, the prototype is shown in that photograph right in, right behind the paddle. And um, at 20 watts, um, I have uh, a, gels, a, a LiPo, a lithium poly um, 4 amp hour battery that has a very high C uh, capacity. And uh, it is able to run the amplifier for a good period of time, and um, even that the you know the amp pulls three amp, uh, the amplifier pulls three amps when uh, key down, and um, so but still with the appropriate power supply and battery, um, combine it with your new PSK modem, and uh, who knows what marriage is going to come together in the software in the future, you know whether it's the KX3 
for HF operation or HF and, um, and VHF or the SDR uh, cube for uh, uh, for HF. There's the K2, Elecraft transceiver K2 with a 100 watt uh, amplifier if you want to do it on HF and be able to get out, say during a hurricane or hurricane spotting. You're going to need a good power supply for that, but it too is a good uh, a good choice for uh, emergency type of use. Rich, regarding um, digital and uh, digital modes during uh, disaster uh, cleanup or you know the the after times when communications especially um, are in place, whether it's a national traffic system, health and welfare types of radiograms or whatever, can you give us a comment? on uh, a digital mode station, such as what you see down there with a new PSK modem and a keyboard and the FT817. Um, it's, it's next to the uh, the Red Cross um, indication on the whiteboard. Okay. Um, before I get into that, let me just say one thing about power and um, the American government. The military, U.S. military, has for years been very heavily involved in QRP. Now, I know a lot of people are going to take exception to that. However, having been involved with the military for 20 years, I spent a lot of time at major uh, HF stations that use 10 kilowatts. I've also used radios on my back that had one watt, namely the uh, PRC-25, the PRIC-25, the PRIC-77, and the PRIC-1099. Uh, 1099 actually runs about 15 watts, if I remember correctly, and the 1088, which is a VHF version, runs 10 watts. The American military is not stupid. 10 watts is a good power level versus battery consumption level, and the K2 is a 10-watt radio. A bare-bones K3 is a 10 or 12-watt radio. So, you know, don't think that you have to have a 100-watt radio to really participate in HF. You don't. The adequate antennas and 10 watts will do wonders. And I got to tell you, it's uh, it's amazing. I had a, a, a Prick 74B, which was the first synthesized radio the U.S. military ever bought, made by Harris. And that thing only put out 11 watts, going downhill with a tailwind, full charge batteries. And it would do sideband, and it would do CW, and it did it quite well. I had a lot of lot of fun with that on the built-in antenna, that was like about eight feet long. So it doesn't take a whole lot of wattage and the fact that a FT817 at five watts, that's a perfectly capable radio. A lot of people don't want to admit that, but it's true. Okay, down to the American Red Cross and underneath that the 817 and the and the uh, PSK modem and the K3, or KX3, sorry. KX3 is a, is a great radio. I don't have one because I don't need one. Uh, not that I don't want one, I just, you know, want and need. <laughs> Ham radio, the word need really doesn't apply. You just want. Anyway, uh, had plenty of 817s. I've had, I think, three of them in the past. Good little radio. Coupled with the NUE PSK modem, puts a very fine digital station on the air. It is a, a just a neat little set of boxes. And you can do a lot with it. You can do teletypes. You can do PSK, BPSK, um, CW. I don't know whether JT65 is coming or not, although JT65 really has no application that I would think of in uh, emergency communications because you're only allowed, I think, either 13 or 15 characters as, uh, as text. So you really can't pass a whole lot. 
It's designed for extremely low signal uh, uh, receive levels down around 20 dB below the noise level. Um, so it really is a extremely, is like for meteor scatter, things like that, it's an extremely specialized uh, form. However, there's Olivia and other stuff out there that is going to be coming along and I'm sure it's going to find its way into the software uh, of various things, including the NUE PSK modem. First one I ever saw was the one of Larry Wolfgang, uh, WR4B had, and that was, the, I think, the prototype that was uh, shown in QS, uh, no, not QST, um, the Experimenters Magazine, uh, not National Contest Journal, QEX, there we go. And uh, I was amazed. I, I was, that's, that's what triggered my imagination, and no, I got one. Uh, and it's really cool. I have to tell you, you guys did a fine job putting that thing together as one little computer-free terminal. We don't need no stinking computer. It works all together. Uh, D-Star is another mode, but again, D-Star, as I understand it, is dependent upon the Internet. Internet infrastructure can be extremely fragile, more so sometimes than cell phones, and that is extremely fragile. So before you jump really headlong in D-Star, know that two things. Number one is Internet, internet dependent, which can be a real problem, and number two, it is proprietary. It is not APCO 25, which is the standard for homeland security and emergency communications. It's not APCO 25 compatible. Will it ever be? Probably not. Yesu, I think, is coming out with their own form based on APCO 25, a digital uh, format. We'll see what happens with that. Uh, it's been a long time coming. They didn't jump right on the bandwagon when D-Star came out, so maybe they put some thought into it that, uh, that ICOM didn't have. Believe me, there's two distinct camps with D-Star, those that like it and those who hate it. So if you like R2-D2 sometimes, go with D-Star. Last question on digital mode before we move on. What's your experience um, or knowledge of what the current usage of digital mode in emergency sites, primarily, again, for health and welfare types of radiogram messages and stuff, is it indeed used? digital modes and specifically um, PSK? This is kind of hard to answer because um, our group here uses WinLink and they use NBeams and other stuff that again is centered on the internet. As long as they have internet connectivity they can do things. I don't, we do have PSK, uh, they, have, they have been doing experimentation with PSK on two meters and it is usable. Uh, there's not a big flocking toward it. We're still passing traffic uh, the old-fashioned way with message handling and uh, you know, message, blank, uh, message forms and things like that. However, the message forms that we use are not the same ones that the ARRL uses. They are unique to uh, Gwinnett County. Uh, they were the same thing up in, uh, in uh, Luzerne County in northeastern Pennsylvania. We had our own message format even though we trained on a uh, ARRL message format traffic, we in fact used those formats that were dictated by uh, the local emergency communications unit at Luzerne County and the uh, Berwick National or Berwick uh, uh, Nuclear Power Station. I'm sorry, the Sussex Steam Electric Station, uh, AKA the Berwick Nuclear Power Station. Uh, power power okay, good enough. Um, Joe, do you want to kind of take us over into the area of the human and personal aspects of emergency preparedness and uh, going out into wet, cold, dark areas of, of, the, of the land? 
Sounds like uh, the weather outside my door tonight. Certainly. Uh, Rich, we've discussed it a little bit offline, but uh, I know you have some some good experience and some background in uh, what you do to take care of yourself in the field, what you should take along, and the, the considerations you have to take into account so that uh, you're self-sufficient or fairly self-sufficient, don't become part of the problem instead of the solution. What uh, what sorts of things do you recommend for uh, uh, food, for clothing, and for uh, shelter for MCOMs, MCOM situations? Oh, man, you stole my tagline. If you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And that is, that is also true. That's even more so in emergency communications. You have to be self-sufficient, period. You should take your own water, uh, power bars if you like them. I, I have experimented. I have a unique... Going back to the first, uh, up to the top of that whiteboard shows me in the back of my pickup at 337 pounds. The picture to the left shows me at 214 pounds. The difference is a good surgeon and gastric bypass surgery. Having said all that, there are times that I, well, I have to take in about 60 grams of protein a day to stay healthy. The only way to do that is with some form of protein powder, protein bars, whatever. Believe me, I have run the gamut on stuff that tastes like cardboard. And there's a few that I like, there's a few that I can tolerate, and there's some that I absolutely would not eat. I don't care how hungry I was. Bottom line is, find something that works for you. Canned goods are heavy. Power bars aren't. Uh, you can buy uh, whey protein powder, take it in, in baggies, uh, weigh it out, take it in baggies, mix it with milk, mix it with water, whatever, and use that. Uh, it's not going to be very palatable. It's not going to fill you up. It's going to keep you going. The thing, uh, I like jerky. People say, oh, why have jerky? It's like loaded with sodium. Not so much, uh, but you, there's a certain train of thought. They don't issue salt tablets to the military because they want your blood pressure up. They want you to sit there and retain water because that way you won't urinate the water out and, and, and sweat it out as quickly. In the, in the deserts of Afghanistan, it is two bottles, uh, two liters of water and one liter of Gatorade per hour. And they still get dehydrated. So think about that and think about your own. We're not going to be in the Afghani desert, at least by the hope we are. But uh, it gives you a, a frame of reference, a data point to look at your own consumption of water. You have to stay hydrated. If you do not stay hydrated, you're going to suffer mentally. The thing that will happen is you're going to be making bad decisions. You're not going to be thinking clearly. It's going to be worse than hunger because you're not going to notice it right at first. And the darker your urine is, the more dehydrated you get. So the best thing to do, pack water. Get a, get a camelback, a dehydration pack, good for a couple of liters. goes right behind the backpack. Uh, take extra bottles of water with you. I normally, if I'm going out on deployment, there will be at least two cases, two 36-pack cases of water goes with them. And Pat, we don't get caught short. You just can't afford to do it. Um, as far as food goes, again, protein packs, jerky, um, candy bars if you want them. The sugar rush is good. It keeps you moving. But then there comes that sugar crash. St try to stay away from stuff like um, Red Bull, Monster Energy drinks, stuff like that. You don't need that. What that does is artificially jacks up your, your metabolism and there's a crash associated with it, the five outer energy shots, same difference. 
they're just not good. And they're being recently linked to heart conditions, especially in teenagers. This is, you know, I'm not saying it was, it's a cause, but there apparently is a link there. So if you've got bad heart, not the thing to take. Food, clothing, dress for the season. Dress in layers in the wintertime. It's easier to take layers off than it is to put layers on. Go out, take layers off as you get hot. Don't sweat. Try to maintain an equilibrium where you're, you're warm but you're not sweating because if you sweat, that'll cause a, your, your fabric to get loaded with uh, water and that will cause you to chill out a lot quicker than dry clothing. Take dry clothing. Take two to three pairs of socks and foot powder. You can never, ever have dry feet, enough dry feet. If you don't take care of your feet, you will be suffering within a matter of hours. Try to get Gore-Tex type clothing, especially shoes and boots that will repel water and will uh, provide a, a, a gas off of the sweat and everything to keep your feet uh, moderately dry. Take your boots off, powder your feet, change your socks. Think about it. This is all Infantry 101. And I'm from the Air Force, so don't ask me how I know these things. I can't tell you. i got to kill you. Um, all sorts of this. It's, uh, a lot of times you'll tend to overload on things, uh, like food stuff. You're going to be taken care of out there in the field. Take stuff that you know, you'll get by with at least three days worth of stuff. Three days worth of power bars is not going to be palatable, but it'll get you there, and you're not going to die. Okay? You can go a whole month. You might have three and a half weeks without food. You can go about four days without water before you start in really feeling effects. At day number seven, you die. Um, let me think. Gosh. Okay. Uh, going to places you don't know anything about. Uh, if try to get topo maps. Uh, 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 I can't remember the people who make Topo USA. La Rome, La, uh, Del Rome, something like that. Have uh, gazetteers of every state in the union down to backwoods trails, and every now and then they have these on sale at half price. I pick them up when they're half price. I've got them for Georgia, Alabama, North and South Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. These are the, this is the trip we take regularly. If I get stranded, i got detailed maps. I have uh, their software loaded on my little netbook. I can, I've got a little GPS receiver that goes with me. I plug in the netbook. Theoretically, I'm not going to get lost as, we don't lo as long as we don't lose those GPS satellites. If I'm, if I'm going to be out at night and I'm going to be in, a, in a, what I consider a less than uh, good environment, I don't get anything in a caliber less than starting with a four. Just kidding. Sometimes I do pack a 45. This is a this is a very touchy subject. Some people don't like guns. Some people, you know, like guns. Uh, if you're going into a shelter, you're probably not going to be able to take a weapon with you. Uh, bottom line is, I like to be prepared. I hope to hell I never have to use it, but I'm not going to sit there and be a victim. Uh, having said that, it's back to George or Joe. Hi, George. All righty. That's a mouthful, Rich. You've really uh, been covering a lot of territory here. Um, I wanted to make, I wanted to draw people's attention to um, a photo of Ron Palatyka, WB3ALL, or WB3AAL. Um, he is the QRP ninja, and he's the one dressed in the fatigues and the hat and the purple backpack. In the whiteboard photo, Ron's come to several Atlanticons to share his um, preparation for hiking and fielding, overnight uh, uh, trail uh, hiking and camping and 
QRP operating as well. And things that we're talking about here also go um, hand in hand with uh, that kind of preparation. And um, when you're getting ready to go out to the field, it's really a good idea to bring as much as you can along, as Rich said, that you can carry. Or depending on where you're going, you might be able to take a, a car, um, be able to transport a lot more than you might be able to carry. So again, your situation, the situations do vary. Um, Rich, I don't think mentioned the um, health or the uh, medical types of kits. You want to bring along a smattering of uh, the, the band-aids, the antiseptics, the materials to wash out wounds, to clamp wounds uh, tight and shut. You want to bring along bare minimum medication that you would take uh, uh, in the case of, of uh, food poisoning, of diarrhea, of things of that nature, lighting and uh, uh, extra batteries, of course, as, as we've mentioned. There are so many dimensions here, and it's really good to follow along on a checklist. Now, Rich was kind enough to pro provide us a, a checklist just before the uh, the show started, um, but my editor, thanks to um, Microsoft giving me a, a, an automatic update of some other software, my HTML editor stopped working, and I'm not able to update the web page until I get that thing sorted out. So very soon, we're going to have a, a lot of notes added to the whiteboard based on what we went through today. Rich talks fast, and um, we're going to go through the audio and kind of collect the information and augment the photos in the different sections that we have here. So if you can, come on back to the whiteboard at some time in the near future, and um, we'll have a lot of this extra information up there that you can use for, uh, for your own um, preparation and your own use out in the field when and if necessary and to finish off my thought that had rich had sent me a um, a go list a very comprehensive go list and what we'll do in fact what i can do joe do you have while i'm speaking here do you have the uh the url for that you could put that down into the check uh, the text section i had uh, sent it over uh to joe the the url address for it and it's a pretty good one too very extensive and again Go through that list and check, um, uh, determine what you need for your situation. And just as Rich had said, bring it all together, give it a dry run, so to speak, and, and see that you can, A, you have everything. B, you can move it from point A to point B without uh, without uh, multiple people. got to be self-sufficient. And just make sure that you can have it at a moment's notice. And that's the whole reason for, for the go kit. Okay, we'll open it up to here to questions. Uh, we're we're going to be closing it down shortly. We covered a lot of ground. We wanted to have this interview style with uh, Rich K7SZ to get as much time and information from him as we could during our time. And as I said at the at the top, there's just so much that we can't really hit everything, even if we talk at at the rate that Rich talks at for the the full hour. So if you have specific questions that you'd like us to touch on, that you'd like to ask Rich and get his opinion, uh, please. Uh, Speak up now. Dead silence. Rich, um, one thing we didn't really have time to touch on, you've mentioned several organizations that you've been involved in, um, and um, you've discussed roles and responsibilities. Uh, I have the um, a little bit of knowledge about it, and I, I think that um, what's becoming particularly um, important these days 
is having training, being associated with an organization, and having some accreditation. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, briefly? Okay, we'll be brief. One thing I did want to touch on before we go any farther is we're primarily concerned here with ham radio, two meters, UHF, VHF, HF. Don't forget citizens' band radios and little FRS, GMRS radios. There are millions of those radios out there. During a large-scale emergency, there are going to be millions of people, depending on those radios, for health and welfare, to help or to get help, to uh, try to you know understand what's going on. So the fact is, you need to have something to talk to those people with, even if you know you never use it per se. Hopefully, it's never going to be a large-scale disaster that, that would come into play. But if you have, if you don't have it and you need it. It's something that takes up very little room. They're not that expensive. Uh, a 40-channel CB walkie-talkie is you can buy them for 39 to 150 bucks. Uh, the Gmers radios you can buy them from like 20 bucks up to 200 bucks, depending on what you want. And some of those have GPS in them. Uh, I mean, they're they're really, uh, and some of them have no weather radio in them, so it's a backup for your your, uh, your weather radio, which you always should have some form of listening to no weather radio find out, especially if you're in hurricane season or tornado season. Um, training, yes. There has been an all-out uh, push, shall we say, since 9-11 to get ARES, RACES, ham radio operator, MCOM volunteers trained. Now, this means different things to different people. There is a lot. Uh, there are a lot of people out there as professional disaster mitigators who do not like and do not want ham radio operators involved in any form, shape, any way of their disaster mitigation plans. They feel that we are amateurs, and amateurs means you're not taken seriously. Now we've all we all know that that's not the case. However, convincing them is another pro uh, problem. ARRL does an admirable job of trying to do that. However, there's still some holdouts. There are a number of uh, Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, courses that you have to take to become certified in Gwinnett County to go ahead and become deployable. If that's, if that's getting to be the same thing across the nation, there's all sorts of uh, training manuals out there from different organizations uh, in the country. We have our own here in Gwinnett. Luzerne County had their own up in PA. California is a big one on training. Matter of fact, they're getting to the point now where they're tending to blend the emergency communicator, ARES, RACES person into the overall uh, umbrella of the emergency communications response force, which is good. It's a two-edged sword, good and bad, which means you may not be doing any communications. You may be getting coffee. And I don't. I tend to, to back off and say, not for me. But then uh, again, you know, whatever you want to do, whatever, uh, whatever involvement you want, I'm sure there's something out there for you. This can get a little crazy. Um, it's good to be trained. The day of showing up with an HT and a battery pack are long gone. You need to be trained. You need to understand the national command system, uh, the emergency communications lingo, uh, where you fit in the overall disaster plan. For instance. Uh, emergency communications does not fit under operations. It fits under logistics, and this is the first time I've ever seen that. 
all my military training in all branches of the military, communications has been under the operations side of the house. This is not so here. It's under the logistics side of the house for uh, the uh, FEMA and for national... Uh, oh, free. <laughs> I'm getting my acronyms mixed up here. Um, Department of Homeland Security, DHS. So it's a little bit of a paradigm shift. Something you've got to put up with. You're not going to be working for operations. You're going to be working for logistics. And that needs to be taken into account. And there's certain things that you have to understand about that. And that goes into the courses that you have to take. And, you know, just take them online. They're, they're free. Uh, get them under your belt. Get the little certificate. And then show them to your ARES racist folks. And you'll be that much closer to being deployable. Go ahead. Hey, Rich. One of the... Yeah. Um... One of the things I think Joe is getting at was can be probably labeled as uh, what kind of cooperation? Oh gosh, I don't know how to. Who's who's the boss on the on the uh, the emergency site, and how do we play a role as a subservient to that? Kind of goes along with line, what you were saying relative to you know you just can't show up and start uh, directing traffic or saying hey I have a radio let let's use it. You want to stay well in tune with Red Cross and any other organizations that are in charge for that site? Oh, absolutely. Um, in ARES and RACES, we have what we call a served agency. And that is, in our case, is the uh, Rich, you stopped transmitting. Okay, sorry. Lost a button here. Am I back? Yep. Okay. Up in Luzerne County in northeastern PA was the Luzerne County Emergency Management Agency. And our served agency, in fact, was uh, Pennsylvania Power and Light. Uh, they ran the Burbank Nuclear Power Station, and that's who we supported because there was uh, 22 municipalities within the fallout zone. Should anything occur at Berwick, uh, we had to man 22 or 24 uh, local municipal EOCs. Down here in Gwinnett County, uh, it's a little bit different. We go, our, our served agency is in fact Gwinnett County Emergency Management, and they will dictate as to who we go out and, and support, whether it be Red Cross, Salvation Army, uh, whoever. Whoever is in charge. That is a, California was the lead, lead uh, on this thing for years because of their wildfire situation out there. They came up with the first really workable situation to uh, a workable plan to deal with these situations, and that was the command uh, infrastructure. The on-site commander, whoever that is, is dictated by what is going on at that particular time. The on-site commander can change as the development of the situation occurs. If you have wildfires, your, command and your incident commander may be the battalion chief of the fire department. As it goes into a mop-up, it may be FEMA, or it may be the local EMA. They change roles. Okay, now you have an entirely different set of people who's in charge. And that has, it's a fluid thing like that, so, and it's, it's designed to sit there and react to the situation. If you have a nuclear disaster, who are you going to be working for? Well, we could be working for, you know, the people who run the nuclear power plant here locally, whoever they are. I don't think we have one here. I think Savannah's the closest. Uh, if it's a, uh, terrorist attack, a nuclear, a dirty bomb or something like that, you're probably going to be working for Department of Homeland Security or the FBI or somebody. Uh, so it, 
pays to know who these are, and that's where you, that's where the training comes in. That incident command system changes, can be hourly, depending upon how the situation unfolds. And that's the beauty of this whole system. It is extremely reactionary, and you can have different people in charge at different times. So area of expertise is at the, spear, at the point of the spear, so you're always focusing on the problem. That is where this whole incident command system comes from. Okay, good points. Very good points. And I think that brings us back up to the top of, this, of, the, uh, of the whiteboard of this session when we were talking about that, our prime service in disaster um, areas, in emergency types of operations, is in support services as far as um, radio communications are concerned, and just to coordinate with whoever is the on-site commander or commanding organization is imperative, and to make sure that you are ready and willing and, and able to take those, those activities. But uh, definitely the training beforehand, uh, the accreditation to to be able to show legitimately that you can handle various situations uh, with respect to the radio communication support that we would offer um, is essential in leading up to that particular point. But uh, at no time that at least that I'm aware of are we are we necessarily the bosses on site? We're there to help. So um, okay, um, I, have, I have one comment. Sure, go ahead. Okay, real quick. The first thing is get with your local emergency communications people, whether it's RACES, whether it's ARES, whether it's Red Cross, whether it's Saturn, whatever it is. Find out from your local folks in the ham club or whoever what your local agency is and get with them and find out what the requirements are. Take their training. Get your FEMA courses under your belt. It'll take you a couple months maybe, but that's okay. It's a learning position. And, and you're going to have to learn to crawl before you can walk, walk before you can run. Second thing is, under absolutely no circumstances do you turn out and deploy unless you have been told to by your agency. People started showing up at Hurricane Katrina aftermath. They had a whole bunch of hams down there. They turned them around and sent them back home. They didn't need them. And that got a lot of people mad. Why? They didn't respond with their unit. They were called out, and they responded with their unit. They were used. If they just showed up on site, they were not used. They were sent home, and that made a lot of people mad. So under no circumstances, deploy unless you've been specifically tasked to do it. In the soapbox. Okay. Any final sessions before we wrap up uh, tonight's session? Alrighty, Joe, do you want to take us home and, and close us down? All right, very good. Uh, thank you very much, Rich, uh, for uh, participating. You're, uh, you're a real resource. What we've tried to do tonight in uh, this evening's session is to give an overview of uh, how, how, as HAMS, we can uh, participate in emergency communications using our, um, our particular skills and equipment. We've talked about the uh, types of antennas to use, um, the bands we operate on, uh, equipment we would use, the radio equipment, uh, power, charging possibilities uh, to make it all useful. Um, and in line with uh, 
being out in the field and operating, we've uh, discussed uh, the type of clothing, uh, food, uh, touched briefly on shelter and um, the sorts of things we need so that uh, we can be fairly self-sufficient and not become part of the problem instead of the solution. And uh, also talked uh, finally about um, training, uh, accreditation, and uh, the organizations, the importance of uh, joining in with the organizations that provide emergency communications. We've had the benefit of uh, Rich Harlan's experience, which is which we really appreciate. Thank you, Rich, to uh, give us uh, the benefit of his experience over the years and his involvement and uh, his knowledge of um, knowing people and uh, knowing where to get information and uh, fitting in. It's been very good. We strongly encourage you to uh, check the uh, check the references. Look over the uh, the whiteboard. The references will be augmented with additional information, so that uh, in the future you can take advantage of this and uh, equip yourself for emergency communications. To uh, it's it's actually one of the reasons that amateur radio exists. It's a communications resource, so it's very important that uh, we participate in it. Thank you all for um, showing up tonight, listening. Rich, thanks again. And uh, 7.30, we'll see you in two weeks. My pleasure, guys. Thank you, Rich, and good night, everybody.